Uh, most of the time, the term the goat is used in our modern culture. It's not in reference to vacation destinations or which soda you prefer. Most of the time in today's day and age, the term the goat is used when comparing athletes. This is like the vast majority of the time when you hear the term the goat, it's because people are debating who is the greatest athlete of all time in their respective sport or position or speciality. So if you turn on ESPN or sports radio or there's like internet debating blogs, you might have debated it, you know, family holidays or, you know, around the water cooler or whatever, uh, sometimes there's really not a debate. There are a few athletes out there that uh, there's very little argument that they are for sure the greatest of all time. This includes athletes like Tom Brady, Serena Williams, Usain Bolt. Like very few people would say there's anybody that would compete with them as the greatest of all time. But there are other athletes where there is a ton of debate and like, you know, friendships are ending and families are divided because of this debate. This is true with athletes like uh, Tiger Woods versus Jack Nicholas, who's the greatest of all time. Uh, this is true with with Floyd Mayweather versus Muhammad Ali or Lionel Messi versus Pele. One of my best friends and our lead pastor, birthday boy John McNary, grew up in Ohio, and you know that because he mentions it like every three minutes when he's on stage here. Um, I grew up about an hour outside of Chicago, meaning in addition to the time that John and I spend debating ministry, theology, golf, and all of our other hobbies, we get into an almost weekly, uh, at times somewhat heated debate over who is the greatest basketball player of all time, whether it was Michael Jordan or some guy named LeBron. I think it's how it's pronounced. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know much about him. Uh, it's a fun debate that we have, and it's a true testament to our friendship that we really disagree and are always friends at the end of every single one of this debate, uh, as our wives are like, okay, guys, okay, it's enough, they're breaking up there. Uh, I'm not going to take any time this week arguing my side of that particular debate, but you are not going to want to miss future weeks, which is all I'll say for now. Can't wait for future weeks. MJ, okay. Uh, <clears throat> all that to say. Uh, for this entire series, we're, we're not going to be talking about, you know, goats and their weird pupils. We're not going to be talking about Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Instead, we are going to be talking about the greatest teaching of all time. I'm sure all of us could recall a teaching or sermon or podcast or TED Talk that at some point in our lives marked us so significantly, we would say, gosh, that was one of, if not the greatest teaching I have ever heard. Have you ever heard like a, a teaching or sermon or something where you were like, that was meant just for me? We get emails and encouragements from many of you as you left Heartland and said, man, thank you for that. Mostly they're for John. But like, thank you for that teaching. God really meant that. I felt like I was in church and God was speaking just to me. He would say that was one of the greatest teachings of all time. I can recall in my life and probably recite with some accuracy teachings I've heard from people by Ken Davis or John Ortberg or Elizabeth Van Sulkema, John Kleinpeter, Ray Vanderlaan, Bishop T.D. Jakes, Craig Rochelle, and many, many others. I can tell you like the moment where I was in my car or what section of the church I was in or what conference I was at where God spoke to me so powerfully, I thought, man, that is one of the greatest teachings of all time. But none of them compare to the teaching that we're going to look at during this series. Early on in Jesus' ministry, his reputation was growing immensely. People were flocking to him and following him and becoming his disciples because of his miraculous power and love. And it was during this moment early on in his ministry that Jesus delivered the greatest teaching of all time. It is the longest recording te recorded teaching by Jesus in all of scripture. It spans three entire chapters of Matthew's gospel. It covers more than a dozen topics, and it's filled with wisdom and insight into what life in God's kingdom 
can look like, can and should look like, and it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave this teaching in the hilly region of Galilee to his disciples, to his followers that were following him. And so this morning, we're going to experience the greatest teaching of all time. All I'm going to do for the majority of our time this morning is read in its entirety the Sermon on the Mount. And so I can confidently say this will be the greatest teaching I ever give. I didn't write it, but it's all downhill from here. Everything else from here is going to be a little bit worse than this one. So as I mentioned, it was early on in Jesus' ministry. Um, He had just spent 40 days fasting and preparing for his ministry in the desert. He chose his disciples, and at the end of Matthew 4, we read this. Verse 23, uh, it says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, which is a Roman uh, Gentile occupier, it's called the Decapolis, it was these ten Roman cities, from Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. And it was at this moment, as hundreds, probably thousands of people suddenly started following this Jewish rabbi that he delivered the GOAT, the greatest teaching of all time. Uh, This is a picture I took about two months ago when I was in Israel. Uh, This is the Sea of Galilee, and it's surrounded by these hills and by these valleys. And these were the places that Jewish rabbis, including Jesus, would have delivered some of their more notable sermons. As we're about to read, it says Jesus climbed up onto the mountain before giving this teaching. Now, contrary to what we might think, Jesus didn't climb to the top and then deliver it everywhere because his voice kind of would have gotten lost being on the top of the mountain. Typically, what teachers and rabbis would have done is they would have climbed about a third of the way up and sat down facing up the mountain. Then their followers would have gathered above them, creating a very natural amphitheater kind of experience. This was taken in the spring. Typically, 90% of the time uh, in Israel, it's a desert climate. So there'd be a lot of rock, a lot of sand. And so Jesus' voice would have carried perfectly and echoed and carried throughout this natural amphitheater. As I said, as hundreds, maybe thousands of his followers would would have gathered above him, he sat and delivered this teaching. Matthew says, one day... Jesus saw the crowd gathering, and he went up on the mountainside and sat down. Again, it went up about a third of the way up. Everybody went above him and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Now, I'm simply going to read what Jesus taught them. And as I do so, as we talk a lot around here about, I would love for you to, well, a couple things. First of all, I'd love for you to... uh, uh, Hear these words with the correct expectation. We, I, myself included, sometimes get so distracted when uh, reading God's teaching or Jesus' teaching, it feels a lot of like do's and don'ts, and I gotta check this. But Jesus was delivering this as a loving father. This was, this was loving instruction for his people, to li- for us, to live the best life possible. This wasn't about like check all these boxes of do's and don'ts, and then maybe I'll love you, maybe you'll get into heaven. Jesus was like, I love you so much, I'm gonna tell you the best possible way to live the way to know me which is my number one desire is to know and be with you and the second thing i want to say is typically as you can see whenever we read uh uh, scripture we try to put it up on the side screens but we're not going to do that for the sermon on the mount the reason being is we wanted this experience to be similar to what jesus original listeners would have experienced which is that they just heard it they just listened to it and i don't know about you but i sometimes get distracted if i'm reading or if you know a bird goes by 
with my undiagnosed ADD. Uh, so we're, instead, I just want to encourage you to just listen. And however that you do that best, if you want to, you know, sit, or you can look. we're going to actually put a picture of the uh, Sea of Galilee so you can kind of picture yourself uh, in this moment. It's much warmer there. There's no snow there, which is, you know, there shouldn't be here. But uh, you picture yourself there. If you are more of a visual learner and it helps to have something uh, to engage your, your eyes with, I'd encourage you to pull out your own Bible or if you want to pull out the, you know, your phone, like the YouVersion app or the Heartland app to read along with me, that's great. I'm reading from the NLT, so it's different than the two we voted on. Sorry, I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, so you can read from the NLT, but it might be a little bit different. But either way, um, I'm just going to read through it in its entirety because uh, this is the greatest teaching of all time. This is Jesus speaking to us, speaking to his followers as they gather, and he delivers like his thesis statement for what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. So here is the greatest teaching of all time. <clears throat> God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose, heart, whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing what is right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you or persecute you or lie about you or say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. For you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? No, it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You also are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one sets a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light so, to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard our ancestors were told, you must not murder, for if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court, 
with your adversary. Settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment. You have heard the ancient prophets say, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard the ancients, the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say, by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. Do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my own head, for you can't turn one hair on your head, white or black. Simply just say, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. You have heard the law, the ancients say that the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away any who want to borrow. You have heard the law. The ancients say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt, corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect and holy and set apart just as your Father in heaven is perfect and holy and set apart. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly. To be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites, as the actors do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private. And your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, the performers who love to pray publicly on street corners and in synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, 
Go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees everything, will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answers merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Instead, pray like this, our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food that we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites, as the performers do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. Instead, when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. Do not store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, and this was a, this was a, a cultural slang for someone who was generous if someone had a good eye it meant that they were generous when your eye is good your whole body is filled with light when your eye is bad same way someone who is stingy with their possessions when your eye is bad your whole body is filled with darkness and if the light you think you have is actually darkness how deep that darkness is no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is why I tell you, do not worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them and aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard 
for you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your own eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friends. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs, for they will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. You parents, if your children ask you for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way, but the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets, who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way that they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, those who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So there it is the greatest teaching of all time. Now again, I want to bring focus to the last sentence in that passage, that Jesus, the crowd Jesus was teaching, as he finished, reacted with amazement. Um, they didn't feel beat down or 
um, like taught at. They didn't feel like, oh, okay, now we have this obligatory like bunch of rules that we ha- had to follow. The reaction of the crowd to Jesus' teaching was amazement because they understood there was something so much greater about what he was saying. It was the love of God teaching his beloved children. They did not interpret this teaching like, okay, now Jesus is, we got all these do's and don'ts and, you know, I guess we got to do all this stuff and then maybe God will be happy. No, no, no. They understood the heart that Jesus was fueled by in this teaching was pure, unadulterated love. That Jesus was communicating, much like Jehovah God communicated to their forefathers, this is the best way to live. I, as your heavenly father, desire that you would live a life of purpose and hope and peace and joy abundantly. And this is how you get it. This is how you know me. This is how you can do life with me every single moment of every single day. And if you follow my teaching, you will experience life and life to the fullest. This is the teaching we're going to experience throughout this series, The Goat. So this week, we experienced the whole thing, kind of an overarching thing, and over the coming weeks, we're going to take different sections and dig a little bit deeper into certain elements of the greatest teaching of all time. But as we close, I have a challenge for all of us. My challenge is that we would know this teaching backwards and forwards. For those of us that claim to follow Jesus, we should be so unbelievably familiar with this teaching. If knowing and follow Jesus, following Jesus is part of our core identity, I believe there is a calling, a challenge, a responsibility for us to know these words so well. Because this is like Jesus' thesis statement. This is his mantle of what it looks like to follow him. Of what our lives look like living in his kingdom. Not just someday, but right now. And this is something, as human beings, we are familiar with. If there is something important to our identity, we remember it. As Americans, we memorize things like the Pledge of Allegiance or the Star-Spangled Banner as a tribute to this great country that we live in. As employees or members of something, we memorize mottos or core values or mission statements. As part of our education, we know names and orders of planets, presidents, historical leaders. We know states, capitals, the periodic table of elements. We memorize formulas for math or language. We learn leadership principles and help, helpful acronyms to be better bosses, employees, students, spouses, parents, and friends. Most of us could probably recite at least six Jim Carrey movies and most Carrie Underwood songs. Like these things are important and so we absorb them. (laughs) The idea of becoming very familiar with things that are part of our identity is something we automatically do and this needs to be at the top of the list. And this isn't like a guilt trip. This isn't to make us feel bad that, you know, I'm not doing anything like that. This isn't kind of a pressure thing. But if we are claiming to follow Jesus, these are the words that we need to know extremely well. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount was meant to be memorized. It comes from a time and a culture that was concentrated on what's called the oral tradition. Nowadays, with the amount of resources we have uh, for writing things down, we have the written tradition, and that's just sort of what we did. But ancient times, for thousands and thousands of years, it was called the oral tradition. And so entire groups of people would memorize historical events verbatim. And so there's oral tradition that spans thousands of years and dozens and and dozens of accepted historically accurate 
documents were passed on for hundreds and thousands of years just orally. It wasn't like the telephone game where, you know, after, you know, you pass the thing around and then it's goofy by the end of it. These were like whole civilizations that would memorize the history of their people word for word. And so if at any point something got a little off, the entire rest of the civilization would act as a corrective feature. And so there are trusted documents, uh, you know, by and about like Alexander the Great and Aristotle and Plato, just all these historical documents, I could go on and on, that were passed on for hundreds of years simply by spoken word before they were actually written down, but they are trusted infallibly because the reliance of the oral tradition and scripture is exactly the same. In fact, the gaps between when something happened in scripture and when it was written down historically are very, very small compared to, we don't have to get into that now, I get really excited about it because it proves it's correct, but we're not getting into that. All that to say, Matthew wrote the Sermon on the Mount understanding the value of the oral tradition. He wrote it so that people could memorize it. In the original Greek language, Matthew wrote the Sermon on the Mount with a memorable thematic structure set in groups of three with vivid imagery and poetic language so that would-be disciples could easily hear it, memorize it, and then live it out. This was meant to be known by heart because people, after hearing it, wanted nothing more than to be disciple of this rabbi. And the term disciple meant everything. Uh, Discipleship in the first century for young Jewish boys mostly was an intensive process, but it was like the highest echelon of achievement that they could achieve. Um, From a very young age, boys and girls at the time would, would go to school and their schooling consisted of studying and memorizing the Torah, their holy scriptures, the first five books of our Old Testament. And so by the age of like 11 or 12, most young Jewish boys and girls had most of it memorized. Usually women at that point would go off to kind of run the family and do that. And then the Jewish boys would, if they showed promise and they were like the best of the best, would continue on. And if they weren't as good, they would go back and learn the family trade. So they'd go to, you know, fishing or whatever the case may be. But then the best of the best would continue on. After they memorized the entire Torah, Then they would begin memorizing rabbinical commentary on the Torah. So like ancient rabbis, they would memorize what they said about this particular verse or this particular story or what this said about their Jehovah God. And then it was the best of the best of the best of that group, small group of boys, that eventually a rabbi could maybe come to and look at them and say, I want you to follow me because I think you can be exactly like me. Being a disciple meant that they were the best of the best, and a rabbi said, hey, I have faith that you can be exactly like me. In fact, there was a term at the time called the dust of the rabbi, that the students of a rabbi were so passionately wanting to be exactly like their rabbi that they would follow so closely, they would memorize the way that they walked, memorize the way that they talked, everything they said, they would commit to memory, memorize the way that they eat, the way they interacted with people, the way that they slept, so that by the end of the day, they wanted to be covered with the dust of the rabbi because they followed so closely. And now you can understand a little bit the power of what Jesus did when he chose his disciples because who he chose were boys who were not good enough to become rabbis. They were back doing their family trade. They were fishing. They were tax collecting. And so when this rabbi walked up to them, after they, they didn't flunk out, but they were told, you know, you're not good enough, so go back to your family trade. They were fishing. So that's why when Jesus walked up and said, hey, I want you to follow me, I think you can become exactly like me. This was like the pinnacle of education in the Jewish culture. That's why it says they dropped their nets immediately and followed him because here this rabbi came and said, hey, culture said you're not good enough. I'm saying I think everyone is good enough to become exactly like me and this is what it means to be a a disciple. And so what would it look like 
for every single one of us throughout this series, maybe for the rest of our lives, we'll stick to a month, to every single day experience the greatest teaching of all time. The challenge for this series, The Goat, is that every single one of us would read or listen to or experience the Sermon on the Mount every single day. Now I say that word experience because that could look very different for every single one of you. However you want to take that challenge on. If you want to read it, if, you're, you, know, if you want to listen to it, like you do a lot of driving or there's like an audio uh, visual that you can do. Typically it'll take you about between 15 and 20 minutes to read through or to listen to. And so what if we took 15 or 20 minutes every single day and said, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself so familiar with this teaching. What would our lives look like in 30 days? As we immersed ourselves in the dust of our rabbi the words of our rabbi. Now, in order to try to uh, help you this, with this, we want to try to uh, give you a couple of resources if that would be helpful. So if you go to our website, uh, weareheartland.us, and then if you go to the media tab in the top right and go down to Sermon on the Mount, third one down, if you click that, there's a couple different options for you to be able to experience this. First, uh, if you kept scrolling down, we have the entire text just written out. So if you need to go to the, it's also on the app too, if you have the Heartland app or want to get that. Uh, so the entire text just written out. If you're like a reedy person, you want to read it, it's available. Also, we have two different um, audio versions that you can also listen to or download. So the first one is just a red one by a British guy. I was like, yup, we're doing that one, win-win. So if you just want it straight red by a British dude, I mean, I, Jesus was not British, but his words sound great by a British guy. So that's that one. Uh, the second one, it says dramatic version, and I liked it because it's just, it's done in a di different way. So there's like some background uh, kind of ambiance. There's different voices, a couple different voices. So we thought if that would help you engage a little bit in the content, then you can play that. Again, uh, the, the dramatic one is about 18 minutes. The the red one is about 16 minutes, very, very doable, very easy. But what would it look like for us to take every single day and immerse ourselves in the greatest teaching of all time, the thesis statement of our faith? What would it look like if in 30 days at the end of this series, we look back, how differently would we see God? Like imagine what we could have seen God do and show up in our lives as we just sink ourselves into his word. That's the challenge. Let's find out together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your words, um, that they are um, spoken to us purely out of love. Lord, I pray for um, this challenge, I pray for this series, um, Lord, that you would give us the boldness and the humility to experience your words every single day. And that in doing so, we would experience your presence in a way we never have before. That in doing so, we would experience what only you can do in us, which is transform us. Into living a life in your kingdom right here, right now, every moment of every single day. God, thank you for your presence here right now. I pray your spirit would seal in our hearts what you've spoken and done this morning and everything else would fall away in Jesus' name. We pray this in your name. Amen.